Jonah Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we're going to be looking further into the ongoing refugee crisis that is only getting worse in Toronto and some outreach workers that say it's a housing crisis, not a refugee crisis. We also explore Canada's worst wildfire season, how it affects the brave men and women who try to keep it at bay and why it's so important for them to relax as well. We also will touch on the Barbie movie and why some people found it so offensive and if Troy Lana's getting 10 years for shooting at Megan the Stallion, justified, I don't know. Or was it too much? So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. I her first heard about the Barbie movie. Okay, don't roll your eyes. Come on. I just heard I heard about the Barbie movie, and then I kind of didn't pay attention to it. I remember thinking to myself, wow, what a cool plan, right? Take all these toys that we had as children, many had as children, and turn them into a story and then put it on the big screen, make it adult-worthy, and bingo. Stir that all together, and what do you got? You got a billion dollars in the first week or something like that, I think. Huge returns in the box office. So what makes this movie so phenomenal? Well, first of all, the audience, right? Like, there's an audience of women, some men as well, some when they were girls and boys, when they were children, when they were younger, who, you know, who Barbie and Ken represented a lot of their opportunities to escape life as it was for a lot of kids whose lives maybe not have been so great when they were children for a whole host of reasons, right? Some economic, some in terms of the kind of um, parenting they've had, the type of bullying they might have you know, had to encounter and, so, and endure and so on. So escaping through your Barbie dolls or escaping through your Ken dolls, or in some cases your G.I. Joes, or your you know, man of action, or whatever movable, posable figures we could dress and buy. And by the way, I was you know all into, uh, into uh, little toy soldiers and stuff when I was a kid. They didn't move so well, uh, but uh, we had them. I mean, G.I. Joe was a big thing, right? Very expensive, but they were a big thing. So, you know, we know as kids that some of these um, play toys, if you will, Bring back some wonderful memories. Wonderful memories. So I'm thinking to myself, what a great idea for this movie. And here's the deal. The deal is that Barbie, the doll, I didn't see the movie. I want to make that very clear. I'm going to, but I have not been to see the movie yet. Um, and the whole concept from what I understand, a little bit that I've read here and some people that have shared with me, Barbie kind of you know comes out of her doll life and has to face real life which is by itself a great opportunity for reflection. So from a story perspective, having Barbie step out of her perfect world, if you will, and step into the real world, as they say, and as the movie goes on to talk about, right, it surpassed a billion-dollar mark. Listen quickly to the scene from Barbie where Ken and Barbie, and they all kind of say hi to each other. It's a greeting, a little piece on greeting here. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. 
So there's a little tip. It's, uh, it doesn't tell you much about the movie, but you get an idea of the, of the voices and excellent, uh, excellent acting, I'm told, in this movie. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of men especially, um, American men for the most part, but uh, that's according to some of the feedback, uh, mostly on the right, the far right, uh, they find the movie you know, somehow offensive or, or threatening in some way. And I and I'm not quite sure. I don't quite get that. But what we know for sure is that she she loses her grip over her inherent, you know, her inherent Barbiness, right? So she asks during one of her classic blowouts blowout parties during the movie, uh, earning uh, earning stunned judgment uh, in some kind of silence response, in silence, some form of silent response. Uh, the dolls don't die, she says. Suddenly, her fake shower is freezing. She falls rather than floats from her rooftop into her convertible. Her feet slump to their iconic from their iconic arch. And the remedy, the imperfection, she's instructed to explore the real world. So she lost her dullness, right? She lost her dullness. And she has to find out the truth about the universe. So interesting premise, no? I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting premise. I think it's a very um, again without seeing the movie. I think there's an opportunity here to to teach some teachable uh, opportunities, and I think at the same time, you know, to, this you know Barbie was a symbol of kind of the ideal femininity, right? The idealized femininity, perfectionism, and she, she's perfect, right? Uh, perfect everything. Her outfits were perfect. Or, you know, you see the any of the commercials for Barbie dolls, you know, the situation was perfect, very California, very, you know, very fun-loving, you know, very, uh, if you've ever, if you're old enough to know the movies way back and the Gidget days and the, you know, like very, um, uh, you know, very uh, beach blanket bingo, you know, very kind of uh, fun loving and on the beaches. And they had, you know, they had woodies for vehicles, you know, the, those uh, SUVs with the wooden panel. Anyway, make a long story short. So the idea was that Barbie now has to face the real world and deal with, um, the, you know, life as it truly is. Right. And then Ken comes along and he didn't really belong. He, you know, he, it was, position such that he didn't belong in Barbie land because he was an imposter, right? So that's according to the TikTok theory about the movie, by the way. And unexpected casting, Gosling got the role. Just Ken, right, is what it's all about. Um, he's having a hard time. He can't get away from Barbie. He can't extricate himself from Barbie, right? So what we're learning is about this in in inescapable clutch uh, in relationships, right? That Barbie and Ken are so uh, intertwined, and that you know, now that she's in the real world, she's starting to see Ken, you know, and the rest of the world for what it really is. The corporations. There's a a whole section there where Mattel uh, is involved by the Mattel, the toy company. Uh, the CEO of Mattel is actually a character in the Barbie movie, played by an excellent actor, Will Ferrell, very funny guy, um, and you know the. Barbie's a brand, right? So the the the, the whole concept is Barbie is a was a is a brand, and what does this movie turn it into? So it became all about feminism. Um, it became about girlhood. But my my I guess my point of the whole thing here before we sum this up is that a lot of young people relied on Barbie. Barbie as a play a way to escape. Relied on the movie, the toy, the movie, the toys, the books, um, any of the any of the the Barbie related. Um, activities and events that would be held at, at fairs and people dressing up as Barbies and so on gave a lot of young people, a lot of young girls in particular, a place to escape. So the movie 
not something to be afraid of, something to embrace and to see kind of how they're turning, you know, the toy world, the doll world, and how that then merges into the real world. And some of the revelations, some of the things that are, you know, that that, that reality brings to, to fold and, and opens a lot of questions for kids to talk to their parents if they see the movie together and for adults, you know, just to share amongst themselves. So highly recommend it. I'm going to go see it. Sounds great. Did very well. So lots of people seem to like it, right? story that I want to talk about right now is about um, immigration, uh, not from a political standpoint, from a humanistic standpoint, right? So what I'm talking about here is I got, I, I, I know, I was reading the reading through something, I know, I was checking my Yahoo feed and came across this article, this little sort of, you know, post, if you will. And it says here, I was stranded on the streets, Toronto shelter short, shortage prompts churches to uh, open doors to asylum seekers. Uh, the person's name is uh, Permanus Nigeru. Uh, they are 47, landed at Toronto Pearson International Airport uh, eight days ago. So this story is five days old. So what that, you know, uh, 13 days ago uh, from Kenya after escaping what he said, left him fearing for his life, right? Uh, so according to the story, he's among hundreds of asylum seekers who've landed in Toronto over the past several months. He said that they did research before arriving in Canada, and all the research left them with the impression, back in Kenya, left them with the impression that they were guaranteed to find a roof over their heads. They assumed they would have their basic needs met, right? Some food, some shelter, some clothing if necessary, and that it would, you know, legalize their new beginning in Toronto, filling out all the necessary paperwork, and off they would go. Well, it didn't turn out like that. As a matter of fact, um, there are some 200 refugee claimants and asylum seekers who have been left to live on the street. So it goes like this, right? Right. I invite you over to my house, say, you know, come on over. We'd love to have you. And all of a sudden, um, you know, we, we uh, you know, someone shows up to my house. We invite him to the house. Maybe my wife knows. Maybe she doesn't know. I don't know that that makes a difference. And maybe it's a function of communication. Perhaps in this case, the left hand and the right hand don't communicate. But either way, we have guests coming to the house, and they're planning to stay over. We invited them. Come on over. We got a place for you. Bring some stuff. They show up. They come. They do. They stay. They look. And then, sorry, but we actually don't have a place for you to sleep. But maybe you could sleep in the backyard on the grass if you're a house that's got a backyard or facility that has a backyard. Or I'll see if the local church can take you in for a little bit. Now, let's look at the mindset of the purpose, uh, the mindset of the person coming to the country. So in this case, this young man, uh, this 47-year-old Permanus Nijiru from, uh, from Kenya, already came from a country that was oppressive, that had levels of violence, um, had, you know, all the necessary uh, elements of making it a difficult, unsafe place uh, to live, um, and comes to Canada to escape all that. But when you come to this country, when you come to any country, when you leave a traumatic situation, so let's take this back to something we can 
relate to at home. So let's take a situation where there's an abused woman, God forbid, an abused woman with a couple of kids, right? Do all the right things. I've been part of this process many, 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 many times where, you know, we counsel the person to leave the abusive environment for the sake of, of their own safety, for the sake of the safety of the child, and suggest to them that, you know, that a, a shelter environment is a great place for them to go as a safe haven for now. And they leave, they can find a bed for a night or two, and then all of a sudden they can't stay for whatever reason. Well, all of the trauma from the abuse, all of the, the difficulty, all the anxiety, the depression, the low self, you know, feeling of low self-esteem and safety, all of the things that we need to feel good every day as human beings, right? We need to feel safe. We need not be anxious or concerned or, you know, freaking out about the future, right? Um, focusing our attention on what might be, what could be, and what, you know, isn't actually happening, right? So focusing on all the things that haven't happened yet or have happened and you can't do anything about it. So that's the whole depression, anxiety piece. All of this stuff going on in your head with zero safety and not freaking out because, A, you're in a different country. You don't have the resources that you had, even you know, that he had even back in this case, this young man, I'm sure had some resources back in Kenya, right? Some family, some relative, someplace he could sneak to or hide in or grab a meal, right? Everybody's got somewhere usually where they can go and lean on somebody, at least for a short period of time. But you come to another country, you show up in a, you know, a different place and all that's missing. You're relying on your hosts, in this case, Canada. In this particular case, Toronto, it's, by the way, happening all across the country, where people are showing up at the door and they don't have a place to live. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser said uh, that the money for Toronto is part of a one-time injection of $212 million into interim housing assistance programs will last until March 31st, 2024. But now what's happening in Toronto is that because there's this money isn't available and they're not even able to get their hands on it, uh, a church stepped up, a couple of churches have stepped up to try to make a difference and keep people, help take these asylum seekers uh, and keep them off the street, right? So the modeling demonstrates that there should be more, that there should be more that cover the cost of interim housing for the people who are currently being denied access to the shelter system by the city. The new money comes after the federal government um, faced a lot of calls, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, door knocks from uh, from advocacy groups to help cover the increasing costs. So there's money floating here somewhere, but similar to other money that I've heard about, and you know, people have talked about, like the money for mental health and addiction beds and so on, that we're we're not seeing the results of where any of that money goes. In the same case here, like you know, we have hundreds of people coming across the border, so we're essentially what I think we're doing here. And I had this discussion with Glenn, uh, my my uh, producer, and basically we're 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 importing more homeless. Like we have a huge homeless problem in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, all all the major cities, and I'm sure there's a, a significant homeless uh, problem in some of the smaller uh, communities as well. It's just a fact of life. Cost of living is impossible. Uh, finding a place to live if you, if you don't have one now is so cost prohibitive. Like, you know, a basement apartment in the city of Toronto is over $2,000 for a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a basement apartment, but 
couple of grand. I mean, you know, uh, so the average cost of a single of a, of a one bedroom apartment, I think in Canada right now is about uh, $26, $2,700 for one bedroom, one bathroom apartment. Very small, right? Five, five or 600 square feet at, at most. So, you know, the, the ability to try to find housing for people, the ability to try to provide people with an opportunity to have a safe place to go is now our responsibility. And the homelessness is growing even um, organically within our own communities, regardless of who we're importing, so to speak. Right? So the concept then becomes, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about being stranded on the streets. They come to this country, right? And they're expecting to be given a meal, a place to live, some clothes, maybe a job opportunity, educational opportunity for the kids, and it's not happening. So we need to do better, my friends. We're not acting at our best as a community. We're certainly not acting our best in terms of um, our, our, our government, right? And it's just not, not, a, it's not a good thing. Talking about uh, this whole refugee thing. Um, I want you to have a listen here if you can. A uh, person's name is Lorraine Lamb. They are a um, an advocate and an outreach worker with Shelter and Housing Justice Network uh, here in uh, Toronto, I believe. Uh, have a listen to what they have to say here about uh, the refugee crisis that we're faced with right now. The fact is people have nowhere to go because our shelters have been at capacity for a really long time. Right now, um, we need to talk about how this is a housing crisis and not a refugee crisis. The crisis is that we have no housing options and there are no shelter options and so people are left stranded outside so what do you think is this a refugee crisis or is this a housing crisis uh, i think this is a disastrous uh rollout of uh an immigration policy designed to help um and operationally it sucks because it's not doing what it needs to do 877-399-9898 leo standing by we want to hear what you think i want to hear what you think we're going to talk for the next little while, uh, you and I, about this situation and a few other things coming up. So chance to chat with me. I'd love to hear from you. It makes me sad when I'm uh, all by myself here and I don't have anybody other than Leo to keep me company. So do what you can. Jump on a call here or you can text the same number, 877-399-9898, and uh, we can talk about it together. Yeah, man, we can talk about this whole thing. Okay, so let's get back to it. So the, the, the analogy I made or I suggested here earlier before we went to break was I invite you to my house, come tell you, you can, you know, come on over. You know, we got lots of room and there's food and probably find you a job and a church to belong to or whatever else you need, right? Place for the kids to go to school. Then you get here, it all sounds great. You get through the immigration, you do all the paperwork, and then you told that, sorry, we, we just don't have a bed for you. You can sleep in the backyard. You can sleep at my in my neighbor's garage maybe for a night or two, maybe at the local church. Anyway, crummy situations. So what happens? Well, in most cases, when these situations happen, there are nice people that jump in and become a part of it, try to help, right? Try to fix things and make things a little bit better. So um, there are is a church organization. Uh, in uh, Toronto here in North York, which is a suburb of Toronto. Um, and uh, they, uh, they're, they're busing people from all over the city to, to this North York church area to help house some people. Uh, got a friend of mine. His name is William. He's from Edmonton, and he's got something to say. Hey, William, how are you? 
I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. What do you? Uh, what can you share with us tonight? Well, I I was kind of frustrating. It seems that that uh, Trudeau's power base is south of the 49th parallel in the and the Golden Triangle around Toronto, and his policies of um, unlimited immigration, legal or otherwise, is causing the housing crisis in the Toronto area. And I think, you know, you're kind of getting what you asked for when you elected <laughs> elected uh, his party because he, you're reaping what he sowed. Okay, so 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 the the I told you so is probably not going to fly here with me tonight. Um, I, I want to kind of get your get your got your drift a little bit more earlier. You're thinking more around um, around this whole. So put yourself in the shoes of a, of a refugee or or an asylum claimant uh, here, uh, William. And uh, you know, do you think it's reasonable that we can import people, so to speak, in hundreds, if not thousands, at a time? And then get them here and not find a place to feed them or put a roof over their heads. Take politics well, aside I, from it. I think it just sucks altogether, don't you think? Well, we're looking at I think four hundred thousand people this year, are we not? Yeah, exactly. Where are and they going to go? I think that they come in heroes. Well, I think that somebody should have said, um, and I believe in humanitarian causes, yeah. but um, that's a lot of people needing humanitarian help, and I think. You know, to to open the border and say, "Come on in," and I think a lot of those people are looking for a way into the U.S. eventually. But to to say, "Okay, we'll bring in four hundred thousand people," and somebody's got to say, "Well, where are they going to stay? You know, are we going to put them you up?" Th- you think so, right? You think so? You think somebody in a big fancy office somewhere in 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 some you know political bunker of some port, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, uh, somewhere, right? That they'd be sitting around going, okay, we got 400,000 people coming. Like if you, if you, are you married by the way? Can I ask you that? Are you married, William? Yes, I am. Yeah. So, and you live with your wife, right? Yes. So if all of a sudden you were going to have 40 people over for dinner, you guys would mm-hmm. sit down and do some serious planning, right? Correct. It, I, I find it, brother, I find it mind boggling that the people that we entrust to make such decisions didn't have enough sense to sit down and figure out, okay, what are we going to do with them? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to stay? You know? So I appreciate the call, William, always. And thank you so much for listening and uh, hang in there, brother. It'll get better soon. I promise. So a lot of people, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, A lot of people um, are, are, you know, are, are saying, well, it's a community situation. Um, you know, William, uh, like many people think it's a political situation. I think it's a combination of both. But there is an organization in uh, Toronto, in North York, called Re- uh, Revival Time, um, Revival Time uh, Tabernacle. Um, and it's um, the it's a church. There's two churches there and Dominion Church International, both in Toronto, um, have taken many refugees in and provided them with food. Uh, nurses on site to provide them with some kind of medical care. Uh, they organize um, uh, all kinds of other not you know places for them to 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 be active during the day. Obviously, there's some level of of um, I would hope some prayer and some some spiritual uplifting going on here. Um, see what Kimberly says. They're uh, they're out of uh, BC. Hey, Kimberly, thanks for calling. Hey, Yona. So what do you think? What do you think? It's like, it it's, sucks, right? It's it just doesn't just make sense. like that other gentleman said. He said it was a housing issue in the greater Toronto area. It's a housing issue everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. And yeah. it's not just for the immigrants. I'm 
uh, over 55. Yeah. I qualify for seniors uh, subsidized housing. Um, I have to move because my roommates are trying to move out by the end of the year. Um, if I can get something before then, like they won't leave me homeless, that's for sure. But um, one's already moved. But I'm even waiting for subsidized housing, and I have to like now put together a second letter saying, okay, here are all my other optional choices of places and I need something by, you know, the end of the year. So do you feel, uh, first of all, I, I hope it, I hope it's going to work out well for you. And certainly a shout out to anybody that's listening to Kimberly. She's at a Burnaby. You guys can help her find the housing she needs. That would be great. Uh, but um, don't you feel, so this is a little controversial. Don't you feel a bit ripped off that you're struggling to find a place to live in a country that you live in, in a country I'm sure you pay taxes in and you know when you're working if you're not working certainly when you were working uh providing tax tax uh, uh, input and uh, and just being a contributor to the community do you feel like you're competing with the new immigrants that are coming for i that feel like i'm competing with for? all kinds of people because i'm still working um okay. and you know i'm low income hourly wage worker and yeah. You know, I'm having to live with roommates, and that's the reason I'm trying to get into subsidized housing, because I don't want to live with other... Not that I hate other people. I love people. Just don't want to be living with people half my age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I hear that, man. I really do. So, listen, you have some... There are some options, right? I mean, I don't turn this into, a, into a, you know, the whole show about you, but you're absolutely right. I feel for the first of all, I feel horrible for the anxiety you must feel being worried about where this is going but there are some options um and and unfortunately they're either going it's either going to be you know a room in a house where there are other people with shared uh shared kitchens shared bathrooms and so on it may just be a fact of life or you know you're gonna have to kind of you know what i tell people when they're in the lineup for government stuff if you've got you got to be that obnoxious person on the phone but not rude you know, they got They got. They got to know it's nine oh five. Kimberly's calling again, right? So, you know, if you're getting a medical appointment or anything. So, what I recommend is stay on them. Keep. Oh keep yeah, in I'm their, keep in working their face. on that. Yeah, keep in their face and uh, don't give up, buddy. You know, if this is going to work itself out. I'm sure. I, I just have a good no, I'm not it. giving up. And to be honest, yeah. at the rate that what people are charging for a shared room, and it literally is a shared. Room, you're sharing a bed with some, uh, a bedroom with someone, uh, oh, like creepy. two beds in a room. That's creepy. That's yeah, it's crazy here, and I'm just like, nope. So I'm going to be working on a second letter saying, hey, here's 50 more options for apartments you guys run with the housing registry. Get me a place. Okay, okay. well, I've got you in my thoughts, kids. So I hope it all works out. Really appreciate the call. Take care. I love a, what we, you we, do. Thanks so much, Yona. Here's the question. Without any proper infrastructure, without proper infrastructure in Canada, is importing more homeless people, bringing in more immigrants and asylum seekers um, instead of housing the vulnerable people that we already have here on on our shores, so to speak? Should our immigration policy change for a while until we get our system under control? Or should we keep saying, come on in? Even when you don't have a table and a chairs or a place for them to sleep. Well, one of our one of my uh, texters here from uh, from British Columbia says uh, not they according to the 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 the, the 
clip of the young fellow that uh, came from Kenya and did a lot of research to coming to the country. Uh, they say, well, not well researched if they were to come, uh, if they, uh, as they thought, if they came despite, it came, they come despite the overwhelming homeless, uh, pro overwhelming homeless problem that we have here. And what was not mentioned in the segment, they go on to say that you played from the woman was the reason they have no space. And that's because of homeless. My answer to them was it's a propaganda. It's propaganda that shows them when they're in those countries that this country is, you know, uh, the epitome of where you want to come live. And, you know, um, it looks better, I guess, than it is when you get here. Maybe it's a better sales job than actually it looks like it's kind of a sales job, but not really, you know, delivering on the promise. So I want to hear from you. Do you think we just hold up immigration for a bit till we get this together? Until more people like my friend Kimberly in BC can actually get a room, can find a place to live, not necessarily with strangers in the same room? I get that that's a little creepy, especially if you're, you know, 40, 50 something and you're rooming with a 20 or 30 something. So homelessness is a problem across Canada. Previous caller talked about it being a Toronto thing. It's not a Toronto thing. It's everywhere, my friends. And, you know, why does somebody come to Canada? Because it's, you know, the land of opportunity. Sure, it can be for some, not for everybody. So. That's the question. What do you think? Should we just hold off on any more immigration for a bit until we figure this stuff out? I'd like to hear what you think. Give me a call. 877-399-9898. Leah loves to hear from you. That's what we're talking about here right now. And, you know, my my feeling is, is really pretty simple. Um, it's nice to do good things. It's nice to help, you know, help people when you can. It's nice to give of yourself. Sometimes even I think it's a great thing to give of yourself in a way that, you know, there is some uh, discomfort for you from time to time, right? There's some discomfort in the giving. Um, not all things are easy. Okay, so we're having an issue in this country. There's, there appears to be a chunk of money floating around somewhere to help solve this problem, right? But if we have so many, if we have so many people um, in our country that are currently, that live here currently, and we can't find housing for them and their children. And by the way, Kimberly, who called from Burnaby, by the way, I really appreciate the call. I'd love to hear from you. really makes my night when we have more callers and people call in to say, hey, and have an opinion. But the woman's working. Like She's got a job. She makes a living. She's not standing at the corner with a cup or, or, or a box or, you know, a bag saying, you know, give me your give me a donation. Not that, by the way, not that that doesn't work for people who need to do that. I give them all the credit in the world, and I and I support it by providing money to people who are doing that kind of panhandling, if you will, or or looking to 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 feather their nest a little bit by asking people on the street, "Please help me." It takes a lot of parts to do that, right? It takes a lot of parts to do that. It takes a lot of, um, believe it or not, a lot of you know a certain level of confidence to be able to ask people for things. But if someone like Kimberly, who is one of our, you know, one of our own, so to speak, right, who's working hard, making a living, or at least some kind of living, she's got some support, she's got some housing support, if they can find her a place to stay. So I've got a dinner ready for you all to come to my house if I can find the food. Well, kind of, that's a crappy invitation. You either do or you don't. You know the old Seinfeld episode? I don't know if any of you out there are Seinfeld episodes, uh, Seinfeld fans, but there was an episode where, you know, he made a reservation for something, 
um, hotel, restaurant, right? Made a reservation and, you know, gets there and they don't have a place for him. And the, you know, the famous line is you can take the reservation, you can hold the reservation, you just can't keep the reservation. So we make all the arrangements, we make all the promises, we say, hey, come on over, we got a place for you. Then you get here and you do- and we don't. What like what's going on, Jackie and Calgary? What do you think? I think it's a little crazy. What about you? Uh, it's re- it's really uh, concerning, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah. I have a lot of empathy for uh, the immigrants that have come here and, and make a better life for themselves. And many do very well. Uh, I have a friend who uh, runs a boarding house, and she has 19, uh, she calls them roommates. And she went to the one, one man, phoned her up from the drop-in center. She went to pick him up, and she took three, four more uh, uh, refugees from... Uh, from the Ukraine. Uh, right. They're all highly educated. They yep. all have degrees, and some of them, you know, higher degrees than just a normal degree. She's put out 400 applicants for each one of them. They, they can't even work at Tim Hortons. Uh, the government does give them money, and she gives them odd jobs within her, in, within her world in order for them to have, you know, some spending money above that money. Uh, but I do strongly believe that we have to slow down the immigration get everything balanced again our whole world is not balanced anymore our whole jackie, world could, is not balanced again. yeah man jackie you couldn't have said it any better uh first of all thanks so much for for calling and thanks very much for listening and being a part of this i, I think you're right i think you're exactly right i think we're we're, we're you know we're coming back from the pandemic where if, like, i hate the term as we're coming back from a difficult number of years uh based on all kinds of reasons pandemic being one of them and and, and you're right companies can't find their footing governments can't find their footing uh, we as a community can't find our footing. The cost of living is through the roof, even when you're making a decent living, whatever that looks like, right? So, Jackie, how 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 do you think um, how do you think we got here? Like, where was the lack of decision making? Like, somebody not in a room thinking, <laughs> "Wow, you got forty thousand people coming here. We better have some cots and some blankets." No, uh, you know, I, I mean, I. The amount of immigration uh, that we opened our borders, uh, they they weren't planning on meeting that that promise uh, when it came to the Afghanistan refugees. They've proven that they gave a number and didn't do it. Uh, right. However, when it came to the Ukrainian uh, war, that that they related a little to you know we, our communities all have Ukrainian uh, histories. So yes, I. Uh, I think the, the, the war in Ukraine has done a lot to remind us that our democracy is, is in battle, so we were willing to give it. You know, it's sort of like in Alberta, we, we can pay more for our gas because we're empathetic towards the oil and gas companies. They'll, get, you know, they'll, they'll bump it up. So I think there has a different mindset with the war. Uh, free money concept is shocking. Our government, you know, making money, you know, we have to make money. I am raised that at the end of the month, I know how much I spend and how much I have. Yeah. And then I put yeah. some away in case of a rainy day. Our government yeah. doesn't do that. And as you said, okay. I'm inviting 40 people over my house and yeah. I've got 40 people coming to my house. Well, can I, I afford to feed them? I can't. Good question. Great, great comment, Jackie. Thank you so much for calling and thank you so much for being a listener. But she, you're right. She's, uh, she's absolutely right. If you're listening in and talking to my friend Jackie in Calgary, she's absolutely right. You don't invite them over if you can't afford to feed them, right? 
don't, and I say that about, uh, about children, like families that have, you know, zillions of kids don't have kids. If you can't afford to house them and feed them and educate them, like, you know, have two, have three, have one, have what's affordable, right. Um, getting in over our, over our head. We do that constantly as a community, as a country, as individuals. And then we have this crazy anxiety, this unbelievable weight on us because we can't meet the need, the, the needs of the demands based on us, based on our promises. Sometimes hard to put your money where your mouth is. That's what we needed to do here in this situation. What we're talking about here is Canadian rapper. His name is Tori Lanez. Uh, he was sentenced to 10 years for shooting Megan the Stallion. Uh, sometimes good people do bad things according to the judge. That's how the judge uh, dealt with this, um, this uh, judgment. Uh, so the lawyers for the Canadian-born rapper, um, con uh, Tori Lynn is uh, convicted of first-degree assault for shooting a fellow hip-hop star, asked a judge to release him from jail so he could receive therapy for his alcoholism and traumatic chi uh, childhood uh, spent in Toronto in the GTA. Instead, a judge in Los Angeles on Tuesday passed, uh, sentenced uh, Lennis, um, he was born as a Daystar Peterson, to 10 years in prison, bringing to an end a sensational case that generated international headlines and steered heated debate about gender politics in the hip-hop world. Um, but... Let me understand this, right? So um, last December, a jury, con a jury convicted uh, Lannis, he's 31, of three firearms offenses for shooting hip-hop superstar Megan the, the Stallion. Her real name is Megan. Their real name is Megan Pete in both feet. So shot them in both feet on July tw uh, 12, 20, uh, 2020, um, uh, during what is referred to as a drunken dispute. So hold there for a minute. I can't tell you. How many times in the decades that I've been doing the kind of work I do in terms of therapy and crisis management and so on, as it relates to people and their mental health and their addictions and so on, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to visit people, mostly men, uh, in prison for domestic assaults while being drunk or high. So two people get together, they're partying, whatever, the partying turns nasty. One, someone says something nasty to the other and the fight breaks out. Uh, usually in most cases, the woman will call the police, say, I don't feel safe. They're both um, drunk. In lots of cases, she threw something at him. He threw something at her. Please take the guy away. Okay. So it's usually when you're getting hammered, drunk or high, and you're in a situation where you're not in control and you're making bad, violent choices, bad things happen to you. But in this case, he shot this person twice in the foot, two, once in each foot. And the, the issue that we're talking about is that um, when, you know, the 10 years for shooting somebody. So they weren't, you know, they weren't, um, they weren't uh, life, the damage, the, the injuries weren't life-threatening. Um, so does the punishment fit the crime? A lot of this is fueled by, um, you know, I'm glad, you know, does, does, what am I trying to get at here? Um what what's what is 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 justice served right so there's a lot more to the story than just this fellow uh shooting someone in their feet uh there's you know sex you know um, sexism issues here uh there's misogynistic issues here there's issues around 
um, transgender and and uh, the whole LGBTQ uh, scenario as it relates to the hip hop world. Um, so there, the, the judge definitely made a point of uh, making this person a um, what we, a fall guy, for lack of a better word. Listen, the guy's guilty for sure, right? He did have firearms. He did shoot someone in their feet. He did have issues for sure. But this is a guy, if looking deeper into the story, and if you believe what defense is saying, um, this is a guy who um, had many, many years, as they say, as he says, um, many years from um, all kinds of traumatic issues. He had a terrible childhood, included an unexpected death of his mother. She had a blood condition when he was only 11. Um, he, there, he and his father were, uh, she and her and his father were missionary preachers. He was born actually in Toronto. Lennon's was born in Toronto, um, youngest of six kids. And his family relocated often, and he was he received a lot of corporal punishment, a lot of beatings and such uh, by belt or by a tree branch. Uh, he had body, body welts as a kid. Anyway, not a nice story. And, and again, not an excuse for taking out his violence in the way that he did. But here's a guy that might be better served if he got some help. And even though I spent a decade in the prison system doing the best that we could as chaplains and as, as uh, lay, lay, you know, lay, uh, lay uh, people in the system, trying to help those with some form of guidance and some therapy and some understanding and being a good listener and all that cool stuff, right? Stuff you're supposed to be doing. But you don't get a lot of support. You don't get a lot of, a lot of therapy in jail, right? I worked at the Ontario Correctional Institute, which is, I think, one of the few if not the only uh, prison system that I know or, or, or uh, uh, a, a penal system that I know, a uh, facility that I know where you actually have therapy sessions and so on and so forth. Others do as well in the federal system here, and they do as well in the federal system in the United States, but um, not a place to get the kind of therapy that he might need for the kinds of things he's dealing with. So does the, does the sentence fit the crime? I want to hear from you in about, uh, I don't know, about uh, 35 minutes or so. I want to hear what you think. Give us a call. The number is 877-399-9898. But, you know, in looking at the defense memo, they talked about this young fellow, Lennis. Um, he earned a diploma at the Peel Adult Learning Center here in, in Brampton, Ontario, here not far from Toronto. Um, he lived in an inner city downtown, slept on park benches. You know, it's, it's, it's not a positive story. It's not an excuse to shoot anybody. But he didn't kill anybody. As a matter of fact, she wasn't even, they weren't even injured so greatly that, you know, it, it affected their, their, um, you know, their life going forward. Now, that doesn't mean the victim didn't suffer trauma. I mean, no one wants to get shot, right? Especially if there's hatred and violence in the, violence in the interaction before the actual shooting in terms of the words that were used. Was there any other physical violence in the same situation? What kind of hatred was, you know, kind of hateful things were, 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 were spewed during, you know, the conversation, during the fight, whatever. And, you know, in, in an interview some time ago, uh, Lana's boasted about having uh, four ongoing court cases, right? And no mention of a criminal case in, in, or a criminal record, actually, in Toronto. We don't know that. But that, you know, some of that bravado is as much for street cred, street credibility as it is for anything else. So when people do bad things, is throwing them in jail the right solution? For some, I would say absolutely. It's the place they belong. And in some cases, in many cases, it's probably the safest place for them. 
you know, I know some folks that are uh, that are incarcerated that, you know, uh, as a result of their lifestyle, they'd be dead otherwise. You know, opioid users, people on the street, not that there aren't drugs available inside as well, but certainly um, sometimes being behind bars for some people might be the safest place for them to be. In this case, there's no there's no benefit to there's no psychological or mental support benefits for this young man. He's way too young to quote unquote flush down the toilet. I don't know. I I think it's a little much. I think ten years is a lot of time. We give people a whole lot less time here for a lot more violent crimes. So that's my thinking. Give me a call in about a half hour. Tell me what you think on this, and uh, we can chat about it uh, together. talking about now is the behind the scenes look at what's happening in the world of firefighters as we deal with some of the worst wildfire uh, scenarios that we've had in Canada probably in a very, very, very long time. Um, And the days of firefighting are very long and exhausting. So when the crews come back to camp, the last thing they want to do is have to find a place to sleep or figure out what they're going to eat, right? So behind the scenes, firefighters battling BC's most destructive wildfire season is an army of more than 1,400 contracted support staff doing everything from first aid to making sandwiches. Uh, The small camp has a a staff of about eight workers, includes a chef, a cook, uh, chef, cooks, uh, a healthier uh, health staffer, a janitor, a maintenance worker, and a designated sandwich maker whose sole job is to ensure each firefighter is equipped with about four sandwiches per day. Sean McCary, He's a former wildlife fighter in Alberta, knows what these responders need for support. Now the dean of Lakeland College, their emergency training center in Vermilion, Alberta. McCary previously helped battle some of Alberta's most furious, or excuse me, ferocious and historic wildfires. It included the 2011 Slave Lake wildfire that destroyed more than 400 buildings and the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfire that forced nearly 90,000 people to flee from Canada's oil sands region and raise thousands of homes to ash. My guest this evening we're fortunate to have is Mr. Sean McCary, as I said, Dean of Emergency Training at Lakeland College. Sean, thanks for joining me tonight. How are you doing, man? Thank you very much, sir. It absolutely is a pleasure, pleasure to sit and chat with you this evening. I'm, I was very much looking forward to it when I got the invite. So I'm uh, looking yeah, forward too. to chatting with you on the topic. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited that uh, you could be here. So first and foremost, before we get too involved, um, Dean of Lakeland College Emergency Training Center. So who are you training? Oh, absolutely. So we, uh, Lakeland College, we're, we're just entering our 65th year with the Emergency Training Center next year. And uh, we were originally established by the Alberta government uh, to train municipal firefighters in the province of Alberta. Um, since then, we have been, uh, we, we grew up and grew into Lakeland College and they took us over. And I've been there in the dean role for the last year in, in these boots. I worked as an associate instructor at the college in the past. And actually, that was uh, Lakeland was the foundation education for my personal career um, and, and success that I've seen in my industry or, or working in municipal and wildland and, and emergency response field was I, I cater or I, you know, thank Lakeland for all that time they spent with me to get me prepared for what I do. But we're training you know, wildland firefighters, we're training technical rescue experts, we're training hazardous material experts, we're training prospective 
students that are looking to get into municipal firefighting or our rural-type wildland firefighting, we also have a ton of industrial clients that come up with their emergency response teams and also do some refinement or, or advanced training skills at our facility in Vermilion. It sounds so cool. You know, you have a 20-year history uh, fighting fires. You're now inside training others. Um, what You know, what's the difference? Uh, I, I can only imagine that the adrenaline buzz and the, the, the lift that you got from actually out there with your, your, your crew doing, doing the work uh, is a certain kind of energy. How do you, what have you done with that energy as it relates to bringing it into the classroom where you kind of, you hung up your belt, so to speak, and now you're comfortable with, uh, with uh, Sean uh, 2.0? <laughs> it's, it's actually good. It's actually a lot less stress. And, and, you know, the phone doesn't ring at three in the morning and you don't get alerted that, you know, someone has lost their house or that someone had, you know, died tragically in the night or whatever it might be. So you lose that, that trauma side, which is nice because, once you've done your time in that in that realm, it's you're happy to I think hang up that stuff, and that was the piece I thought also when I left. Um, I finished uh, my fire service career as the fire chief with the city of Fort Saskatchewan here in Alberta, and when I left, I was going ah now I don't have a, a community anymore, or I don't have a how am I going to impact the community? And I actually got further into municipal government and helped even more uh, supporting other fire departments in the area. But now I get to impact you know, the the national fire service community or first responder community, uh, you know, global, you know, Canada-wide. So that creates a lot of passion and fire inside me, pardon the pun, is that I can see and have impact on, on young students and active first responders out to make sure they're better prepared, you know, excited about the career they're getting into and, and just out to put their best foot forward and be safe. You know, I've been a corporate trainer and uh, a performance uh, coach for some time on top of being a therapist and I guess part-time being a, a, a broadcaster. But um, I can hear in your voice, okay? I can hear in your voice that you are really good at what you do because you sound so <laughs> excited and so passionate. Um, so the next question is, what? It, what? because it, I want to talk a little bit about trauma before we get to sandwiches and beds, right? Um, the trauma that you dealt with, I mean, we all know that there's trauma that comes from loss of life, loss of loss of, uh, of uh, material things, buildings, houses, you know, the trees themselves, the forests themselves. Um, how, how did you deal with the trauma while you were actively out there every day? Absolutely. I think, I think first and foremost is getting your, your mindset and that mental, mental readiness of what you're going to see. And I would say as when I started my career, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't the most, you know, forward thinking people about mental trauma and mental health back then. And, and it would come a long, long way to improve the culture and the understanding in the, in the first responder world. Um, so even at the start, I wasn't very prepared for what I was going to see. And and again, I can probably go back and reflect on every incident where you saw something menacing, right? That That's easy. But I think is is the ability to adapt, the ability to chat, chat with people in your, in your community and your fire stations and that about that, release some of that, take good, take on good stress relievers, uh, you know, be able to, you know, handle that. And, and thankfully, like I said, as we become more proactive and there's more programs and we're more willing to talk about this stuff, 
than you were just to sit on your hands and, and be quiet in the past. So I would say that there's been huge leaps and bounds for the industry itself, uh, which I think has hit a lot of people like myself just to become normal with it, that it's there, mm-hmm. but you've got normal ways to deal with it and manage it. And you're not going to be seen weak for saying something. I think there was that big stigma is that you're going to be seen weak. And it, that's not the way anymore. It's we're much more an accepting culture. Uh, so I think that's a huge positive where I can say, you know, that was a crappy incident or that was terrible. Um, and, and you can chat it out and everybody understands you now, I think. Have a, have a listen to this. This is what one of our uh, partners here, a global news reporter, uh, breaks down the devastating effects of the wildfire season. Have a quick listen. So far this year, 13.4 million hectares of land has burned from wildfires. That's more than six times the 10-year average. Canada has seen 5,500 fires release emissions equivalent to more than 1 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is around the same as 21.7 million cars over one year. So you can tell, you know, tell by the this particular clip and, and others that uh, it's a big, a big deal. So my guest this evening is Sean McCary. He's the dean of emergency training center at Lakeland College, and he fought, he was a firefighter for over twenty years, and um, just a, a guy that knows a lot about this stuff. Uh, Thanks for sticking around, Sean. Uh, quick question here. We, we talked about, before we went to break, I know it seems like forever ago, um, whether the, there's, in your, in your training in particular, as part of this uh, course that you provide, uh, in this training, um, along with um, sort of what happens in real time, how much time and effort and, and resources are spent uh, in trying to help people keep their heads straight? Well, that's a great question. Actually, oddly enough, uh, just a a week ago, we actually just partnered with a a retiring firefighter who's doing a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress artwork, and it's part of his recovery strategy. His name is Daniel Sundle, and we just partnered with him to put an art exhibit in our main corridor on campus at, at the emergency training center so we would constantly get that visual reminder that mental health is important this world is you know there is trauma involved but it's we need to be better about it we need to manage it better we need to be talking about it and that's the whole piece there so with that and, and workshops we host and integrating a number of discussions in our in our pre-employment curriculums uh, students do get the access to a, a variety of different programs and make sure that they get you know that that head start on their mental readiness for when they walk out our door um, expecting to see what they will see and know how they can manage it properly well if you ever need some coaching or some therapy or, or some if, if i can help in some way to provide some free uh, for free input you can find me and I'd be glad to do what I can to support the work that you're doing. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes at, at a camp, uh, these relief camps. Obviously, they're very important. Um, what type of people are there? And what, I, I guess they're special kind of people. Who are they? And give me an idea what that looks like. Absolutely. I would say the, the people that are manning the camps behind the scenes are, are unsung heroes. Absolutely. They're the people on the front lines and, and out there fighting the fire wildfire would be very short-lived if if it wasn't for you know the six to eight to 12 people behind every person that's out in the field supporting that so uh the last thing the firefighters that you alluded to her last thing you with firefighters want to worry about when they get back is you know having clean washrooms having food having places to sleep and, and those people behind the scenes are getting that stuff organized or getting those things in place uh so when those first responders show up 
they're taken care of from that moment forward until they're pushed back out on the line the next day. So they're, they're very much hard workers. They would be putting in equal to, if not more effort than the guys on the front line than the, the men and women out on the front line, like you said, is they're, they're, they're critical uh, for a safe and effective operation for sure. And the interaction that goes on between the people that work there and the ones that are out fighting uh, in the, the fires themselves, the actual first first responders, if you will, as it relates to this this conversation, um, the, the dialogue, the kind of conversation you might have with the cook or the cleaner or the person who's responsible for vehicles, um, is everyone there kind of designed and is that part of what you teach as well? Are they designed, is it designed in such a way that they're getting um, verbal support and kind of, you know, a, a bit of a shoulder to lean on uh, with everyone that works there? Or is that, you know, not so much, I do my job and I leave kind of thing. I serve my food and I go. Absolutely. I think, I think you might get a little flavor of that here and there, but everybody's come together in that community to help out. And I think the, the first responders recognize and appreciate those people that are there. And, and you'll see a lot of laughing and chuckling and joke telling and, and that, that humor in those environments when you're in the cookhouse or when you're in, in the, you know, some of the, the down areas, like your, your say, if you had any recreation or anything like that after hours, you're going to get that light sense of humor piece with that because everybody's, you know, you're relying on one another and you're all part of the bigger team. So that, that whole teamwork environment, you bring everybody together. Uh, like you said, every, those guys are relying on one another. Um, if it wasn't for the wildland firefighters, you know, that cook might be not out there. And if it wasn't for the cooks, the wildland firefighters would be out there starving kind of thing. So we've had a really, a really heavy year for, for fighting fires this year. Um, when you when you're providing training for, for the folks that go through your program, um, what do you what do you teach them as it relates to keeping their heads straight? And how do you get them ready for some of the real kind of frightening stuff they're going to walk into? Absolutely. And, and just just to clarify, just to speak on wildland firefighting or for emergency response as a whole. Uh, I think just generally speaking, when you get out there and put yourself on the line and put your life at risk. Ooh. Well, I, I would say first and foremost, we got to make sure everyone understands the hazards and everything you're doing. Like fire behavior is amazing. Uh, there's a whole science behind it. And many researchers spend time or countless hours researching what what happens with fire in certain situations. Um, as we saw, we recently took 21 of our students out uh, for the first time ever. We were able to leave campus and go and actually engage in a wildland firefighter or wildland fire in, in Parkland County here in Alberta. And that was an amazing opportunity for 21 of students and six staff to go out and, and see a real world incident firsthand, get down and dirty with other frontline responders uh, share stories, build a network, and come back just absolutely jacked up to go back out and do it again. They didn't want to come home, but be able to offer that type of experience for these students, uh, it blew their minds. Um, and now it gives them a really great perspective of what they're going to get out and then go and see. And and in part, uh, sorry, and in Lakeland College, we really try to integrate that work integrated learning atmosphere. So we're trying to build in a lot of those fire station mentality, or a lot of those behaviors and mannerisms and duties that they're going to experience when they leave. They're already equipped with when they when they walk out our door. That's amazing. It sounds like you've got a real handle on it. Um, 20 years ago uh, versus today, difference in what the camp looks like. Tell me. Oh, yeah. The uh, You know what? I would say one of the blessings in Canada, and this might be odd to say, one of the blessings in Canada is we're having 
major emergencies now. Um, you know, 20 years ago, you'd have the odd one. Uh, you'd have, you know, the tornado in Edmonton. Uh, you'd have a, a, the flooding in Manitoba. But you weren't seeing this, the number of incidents and the severity of incidents across the nation. Now we are. And that means we're getting really good at them, if that makes sense, because we have a lot of experienced people. Each time we're pushing the element a little bit further, they're getting better, they're getting better. I originally did my master's degree through school in Australia because I know that's the world they live in. I wanted to learn from them, whereas I didn't trust, you know, Canada. We weren't there yet, Um, but now we are. So when you, when an emergency happened, a lot of it was flying from the seat of your pants and, and thankfully everybody gets through it. But now uh, we have a lot more resources ready, a lot more experience on the table, which is, you know, a blessing in disguise. Uh, so I think we're very fortunate to, you know, have some of these things that has made us a better prepared nation. If I can say that. Well, Sean, listen, man, I really appreciate you joining us here tonight. Um, I, I appreciate all that you do. I think anyone who's fortunate enough to be in your classroom uh, would be as infected uh, by your energy uh, as I have been uh, over the airwaves. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us and for everything that you do every day and for being out there, keeping us all safe in one form or another. Thank you very much. And thank you for keeping, you know, the important story of everybody on the front lines in, in the minds and thoughts of everyone uh, listening in. So appreciate you. Thank you very much for the opportunity.